Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Compliance Guy, our Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable. I'm Sean Weiss, and as always, I want to start off by saying thank you all for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my friends for a little while as we get to talk about all things coding and compliance. So joining me today on the program on the roundtable are Paul Spencer, Scott Kraft, and Terry Fletcher. Welcome, lady and gents. Thanks for uh, being here today. How are y'all? Very good. Hope you had a wonderful weekend. Very good. Yeah, not a not a bad weekend for me. Not a waiting bad waiting for winter. This is just not my season. It's I know. <laughs> I know. It's hot. So so as it, it's not because I've gone bald, but we had ninety. Eight and 99 on the thermostat here in South Georgia. And with the heat index, it was 104 degrees. It got up to 108 degrees um, yesterday. Uh, as Jill and I were driving, I pointed to the thermometer and I said, look at this. And it said it registered 108 on the, um, <laughs> on the thermostat, which is just not fair. So, no, yeah, you know, so e even though I didn't have that great head of hair that I had back when I was in high school and college, um, I still had some, but it was too, it was too hot. Yeah. So I, had I spent my weekend outside, uh, in, in musical endeavors, uh, you know, and 98 degrees is not the weather to be, uh, singing uh, when the setting sun is staring at you on the right side of your face. I'll just, oh, I'll just put that one out and there. Look, I'm in the Northwest and we got right under a hundred yesterday and we're not supposed to have that business up here. I didn't, that was, that was not in the brochure. It was much hotter than it was, you normally is up here and, and the air conditioning is not built for those conditions. And I'm actually going to be in your neck of the woods, Scott. Uh, I'm going to be in Portland at the, um, uh, the Ascent annual conference for the uh, ear, nose and throat. Uh, specialty in September. Nice. The end of, oh. Yeah, the the end of September, and then I go from there to Waco, Texas. That should be fun. That's two so. very different experiences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So we've got we've got a jam packed show for you today. Um, <clears throat> we can and, and as always, if any of you have any of your, um, you know, coding conundrums or compliance questions. Uh, feel free to post them in the chat. We'll make sure that we take them and answer them for you to the best of our capabilities. But today, we want to talk about um, a few things. And I guess I'll go ahead and kick the program off with um, bringing up everybody's favorite topic, cloning. And, you know, I bring this up because we are seeing more and more um, positions being taken by insurance companies 
by auditors within the government, uh, special investigative units, uh, talking about the fact that they've reviewed the documentation and they believe that there is little to no variance from encounter to encounter. Thus, the documentation is cloned and they're not willing to give the levels of service that were selected by the providers or in some cases not giving any credit at all. So let me let me pause there because there's so many different aspects of talking about cloning that we we can explore. But let me let me throw it out to you all uh, because you're the auditors. You're you're the subject matter experts in this stuff. What are you seeing in the audits that you're performing? Well, I'll go first. Um, Go ahead, Paul. (laughs) Um, He didn't call on us, so go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Paul, go ahead. So the the thing that's distressing to me is that we are almost two years into a whole new set of evaluation and management guidelines for the office setting, and I'm still seeing patterns that are really designed for 95 and 97 guidelines, and really – when the physicians and other uh, non-physician practitioners and other providers putting information into the system, uh, and they're still putting information that really, it's good to have it in there based on uh, the Larry Weed definition of a problem-oriented medical record, but for uh, documentation purposes is not needed, and then they're copying it from note to note, uh, it tells me that the warnings about reaching out to your EMR vendor to find the best design under the new paradigm is not being followed. Uh, And that's just in current state. As we go backward and start auditing things that are being looked at by either government entities or commercial audited entities, auditing entities, where they're going backward and looking at E&M services that were uh, cloned in the past, I mean, they're going to jump all over that. But there has to be some product development here. I mean, yes, the EMR is, uh, it was, it's, uh, and, you know, an uncomfortable reality of medical delivery as we sit here today, but it's the tool you're using in order to document your services and it's got to be cleaned up and the templates have got to be cleaned up and it's got to be designed to your specifications. Great, great opening analysis. Terry, go ahead. Well, I think, and to Paul's point, one of the things that I audit seems like on a daily basis is telehealth visits. And my favorite is when they pull in a full exam, like you did not do a rectal exam today. I don't know how you could do that uh, virtually, but, you know, and of course I go right right to the blatant one. But all I'm saying is that I'm seeing a lot of these exam elements that have no way can they do that with, you know, with that. So they just pull it through. The other thing, and I think this is probably to the point when payers ask me to do an audit, they basically are saying, we feel it's a misrepresentation of what was actually done that day. We can't tell which provider actually did it. And what we're noticing is even the typos are being pulled forward. So it just never alters from date from the, you know, one encounter to the next. And when you're pulling forward typos, when you're pulling forward misinformation, Um, you know, I saw one where the doctor actually had to do an addendum, which was at the end of the note, but the addendum never made it to the, the next encounter. So the wrong information was still in the next encounter. 
But again, you know, I hate to keep harping on telehealth, but that's one of the biggest problems I'm seeing right now where everything looks the same. And, and so now I'm into the medical necessity of it. Well, if it looks the same from the last telehealth, why did you need a call with the patient? You know, if then now I'm in my mind, I'm like, unless you need to bring them in in person to really address a problem, I don't, I don't see where this is medically necessary. And I always go back to that medical necessity because that's how, you know, you can support payment. But the, the clone noting thing, I know, Sean, you like the, the term clinical plagiarism, especially in the hospital setting. It, it's, that's harsh. And that is, that's where we need to go with it. It's just, there, there's no way to really explain how bad this has gotten. And we're not just revisiting an old topic. It's, it's happening still, and it's actually getting worse. I mean, Scott, you've, you've, and I've mentioned that. Yeah. And I think, I think some of these guidelines changes have, as Paul said, and as you've said, like, like, because none of these templates have changed, it becomes a sort of immediately more suspicious, right? But as we dive into the assessment and plan, you know, the thing that I've said to my providers over the years is I don't expect you to carry nothing forward. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, right? But there's a difference between the foundation of the documentation and what's happened as part of an individual visit. And so regardless of whatever the, the origin of different pieces of documentation is or are, I'm always most interested in what's happening today. And to the extent I'm determining things in my world related to medical necessity, related to code selection, I'm trying to parse out what's happening today. Now, some EMRs make that a little bit easier than others, uh, but that even relates to things such as review of prior testing results or review of independent images. And you see these things, you know, and the provider will tell me, okay, I want that just so when the patient comes in, I can get that whole piece of it without having to go through the material. That's fine. We just have to understand what we're counting and not counting. And, and Terry, to your point about things that linger in documentation. I mean, I've run into situations where the HPI describes a patient that's two years younger than her current age in the EMR, right? And it's like, well, okay, this is just something that has never been updated. Uh, it's been sitting there in the note and, you know, perception is reality. And I say this to the clients as well, right? When, when some of these things that the provider will come back and say, no harm, no foul. Well, okay. You know, I carried forward this ENT exam or, okay, there's like this typo that's been riding along for five visits or the patient's age is, you know, a year off, the payer auditor is going to look at that entire note from top to bottom uh, very suspiciously. And lastly, on this topic, the one thing that some uh, groups that I've worked with are, is doing to counter that, and I would say to tread carefully with this, is they're basically acknowledging, well, okay, I carried this note forward from this day, but I updated all this stuff to reflect what I did on this date of service. And that's fine to a point. If you're telling me the patient was severely exacerbated, if you're telling me the patient was being initiated on a medication yesterday, I'm not crediting all of that intensity today. Like I need to understand today in the subjective, in the assessment and plan, what's going on with that patient. And I, I just think some of these have gotten to be like very bad habits. And I sort of wonder, you know, whether or not some providers license themselves under the sort of less rigorous counting of these guidelines to basically say, well, I'm just going to just plop a bunch of assessment and plan stuff forward and move on. But that's really not the way this is supposed to work. I'd, I'd like to throw out uh, a warning uh, to uh, my friends in the inpatient space. Uh, if you think uh, cloning and assessment and plan from day to day 
without updates, uh, as I have seen on many inpatient encounters, especially subsequent inpatient encounters, is going to cut the mustard after uh, 2023. Uh, that's, that's a big mistake. Uh, the proposed rule is out there, and we are going to see E&M changes for uh, a lot of services in the uh, hospital setting, not only inpatient uh, services, but uh, observation and emergency services are going to see some slight adjustments as well. Uh, you better get your ducks in a row. And, and, you know, going back to Larry Weed, I mean, he spelled out a lot of things that a medical record should be when he, when he invented the soap note in the late 60s. But the big bullet, the number four bullet, is that it had to be thoughtful, reliable, analytically sound, and efficient. You know, and I focus on the word reliable. Yes. Be because that has got to be there, particularly for a patient in an acute setting. You know, where is that patient on that given day? What is their status? Don't just blow in stuff from previous days because this is a patient who's not expected to be there for the rest of his life. Supposed to, he or she's supposed to be there for a very set time period. And you have to develop that note with that in mind. There needs well, to be and, a continuum. And to that point, what ends up happening in, in the notes that I see oftentimes is as somebody who comes in to audit one note potentially across a, an episode of care, the patient's condition is, is very helter-skelter to me as just a reader, right? Like the patient is doing both badly and better in different lines of the note, right? Like you can, you know, you can tell what's sort of been brought forward and what's been added, at least you think you can, right? And the patient ends up having these contradictions and, you know, certain, you know, maybe lab readings that are introduced into the plan of care. A medication will be described as being, you know, started and then stopped at, at different points, but without, you know, tools at my disposal, so if I go back and I hover as I can do an Epic, or if I look at the note from the previous day and do like a side by side, I'm going to see those things, but you're not entitled to that depth of focus from the payer. The payer may just say, I don't understand what's happening here, right? This is just a real, you know, helter skelter back and forth kind of note that gives me no, to Paul's word, reliable understanding of what's going on with the patient today. So, so I want to I want to make sure that I segregate a couple of things. So we we've talked about two two specific terms. The first is cloning, okay, and I think we all agree that cloning is the same thing as cut and paste, carry forward, right? It's it's the same thing in the note chronologically from day to day with little to no change at all to help us understand the risk, the severity really what's going on with the patient that day. I think that's that's a great simplification of the term cloning. And to keep in mind, cloning from a MAC, from a Medicare administrator, uh, administrative contractor standpoint, cloning is over-documentation, right? And let me, let me just share something with you real quick. So for those of you that are in jurisdiction M for part B, so they have this in the section specific to evaluation and management services, and it talks about medical record cloning. And I'm going to be very brief on this. The word cloning refers to documentation that is worded exactly like previous entries. This may also be referred to as cut and paste, as we just said, or carried forward. 
Clone documentation may be handwritten, but generally occurs when using a pre-printed template or a promoting interoperability program in the electronic records. Now, they go on to say, and I could go through all this stuff, but here's, here's a very important sentence. Cloned documentation does not meet medical necessity requirements for coverage of services. Because it doesn't tell me how the patient is doing today. That's right. Because and that's the fundamental thing that I focus on, right? It's like from a clone note, there may be all these things I talked about before that the provider says, look, I need this for reference. I just want it to be here so I can look at it. Fine. Right. Like, but, but it doesn't tell me anything about how the patient's doing today. Right. Because what it what... says. That's what, right. uh, if you've ever taken a Christine Hall, which we miss her today, if you've ever taken one of her webinars on ENM coding, that's one of the things she says all the way through it to the point where you're like, enough already. But she's right. Today, today, today. And so shout out to Christine. It's just, we're getting a lot of, well, this is what, you know, they had before. Some of the things that keep being brought forward is um, I had a couple of notes that I was reviewing for an Aetna plan. And they were bringing forward things from 1992, 1998. And I'm just like, yeah. you, you can't possibly be still, you know, dealing with something from that time. Well, I need to go back and look at the entire history. I'm like, then go back to the archive. I said, if it's more than three years, I go, you're going to have a new patient anywhere or yep. there's going to be some kind of change. Yep. I said, this is getting just ridiculous yeah. on some of the things you're bringing forward. So yep. let me, remember, yeah. re remember how we used to laugh at handwritten notes that said, looks good. Ate breakfast this morning. We'll discharge tomorrow when they try to bill a 99233. Yes. Um, you know, I just see those same kind of notes, except with six or seven pages of lab uh, yeah. results and uh, pharmacy. So so let me let me, let <laughs> well, me include this part real quick, Scott, and I'll get right back to you. Let me conclude this. So I, I gave you that section where it says clone documentation does not meet medical necessity requirements for coverage of services. Identification of this type of documentation will lead to denial of services for lack of medical necessity and recoupment of all overpayments made. But I went on as part, as, as we got into this segment, I talked about the fact that cloning is considered over-documentation. And what it says is, quote, over-documentation is the practice of inserting false or irrelevant documentation to create the appearance of support for billing higher levels of service. Some PI programs, again, we're talking about EMRs, um, their technologies auto-populate fields when using templates built into the system. Other systems generate extensive documentation on the basis of a single click of a checkbox, which if not appropriately edited by the provider would be considered inaccurate. Such features produce information suggesting the practitioner performed a more comprehensive service than what was actually performed. Now. The other part to that that I want to talk about is this, clinical plagiarism, because cloning and clinical plagiarism are not the same thing. Cloning is carrying forward, cutting, pasting, using your documentation from encounter to encounter to encounter. Clinical plagiarism is where you are, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's where you are taking information that was created by another author, right? Uh, 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 and, and hospitalists are notorious for doing this. They're taking documentation from cardiology, from pulmonary, from infectious disease, 
from uh, orthopedics, from, you know, whoever it may be. And they're taking their language and they're cutting it and pasting it into their own documentation as a shortcut, as a way to be able to gain credit, possibly for a higher level of subsequent care than what they've actually performed services to support. So clinical plagiarism is actually something that I have seen brought up in trial. I have seen physicians charged for clinical plagiarism. And I'll give you a perfect example. If, if you take a look, the big case that I just came off of in June, which was the Bothra, B-O-T-H-R-A, Bothra case. Um, in that, one of the things that the government challenged me on was the electronic medical records and the fact that they, they, didn't, they didn't pull any kind of a sample. There were so many problems with this case. But one of the things that they brought up was this. We looked at only a few patients and we went in chronological order. And what we saw was from encounter to encounter to encounter was the exact same thing. Now, the good thing in pain management is that most patients are, are, are pretty static right? If they have a chronic condition, I'm not talking about acute problems. I'm talking about chronic back pain, you know, where maybe one day they have a flare up. So we have an acute chronic, but the majority of them are chronic patients. And the good thing that I was able to talk about on the stand is look in pain management, these patients are coming three days a week, two days a week, whatever it may be because they have a chronic problem and it's an ongoing problem. So they're static from encounter to encounter. So not much changes. If a patient says my level of pain is a nine and they come back five days from now and their level of pain is a nine, odds are not much is going to change in the subjective narrative that the provider is going to, to provide. So, but we don't want to get to that point of having to make those kind of arguments is my point. Go ahead, Terry. What were you going to say? So there's also something that I just want to bring to also our watcher listeners attention that they may not realize because we're talking about, you know, getting in trouble, federal government, blah, blah, blah. Remember, there's something that it's not new, but it's being enforced now. Information blocking. And patients are now legally entitled to timeliness of their records. And patients are finding mistakes, incorrect entries. Uh, clone notes being brought forward. I actually had a patient that is going after a physician and the physician is freaking out because the doctor put in an old note, patient denied XYZ and brought it forward. And the patient said, no, I didn't deny anything. I said, I can't tolerate it. So the patient was actually not able to get a prescription for something because instead of that, because of the language. And you have to also update your language to current usage, you know, just because a patient can't tolerate a med or can't tolerate something doesn't mean they're denying their medical treatment. So bringing some of that language forward, patients are seeing that in their medical records and they're asking for their records. So you're opening up a whole other can of worms with that. And, and, well, and this, Go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. No, I was going to just say to that, right? Like the scope of the service and we, Sean and I have seen this in some cases before where the patient's like, well, I was in with the provider for two minutes and the notes like nine pages and reflective of all these things that the patient is like, well, that didn't happen. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> I know that didn't happen. I know. Right. So, so I want to, I want to tie this into one more thing. Modifier 25. 
Now, I stop it, Terry. So think about this. If you're cloning your notes, okay, and as you're cloning your notes from encounter to encounter to encounter, you're also adding the modifier 25 onto every single encounter. Folks, the, the level of scrutiny, the level of potential problems that you're going to have is, is almost insurmountable. Because now well, not only are we having to explain, right, Scott, it, 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 and, and I want you to opine on this. Not only are you having to explain why, you know, it's okay to have similar language from encounter to encounter, but using that similar language, why is it okay that we are now using an edit, um, you know, uh, 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 circumvention, if you will? With the modifier 25. Well, you know, what happens with the modifier 25 sometimes in my world, and I'll use orthopedics as an example with some of these uh, knee and shoulder injections. Like every time the patient comes in, it's the carried forward language as though we've discovered knee pain for the first time. And it's like, well, the patient says that she has knee pain and I've discussed some different options, including surgery, but we've decided today we're going to try like an injection. And I go back three months earlier and it's like, oh, we did the same thing three months ago. And I go like three months before that. It's like, oh, we did the same thing three months ago. But each time, you know, we're using the same verbiage to to modify the service, to to make it as though like we don't have any history with this particular injury. Uh, and it, it's just a, a very, to me, high-end risk factor. And I want to just come back to the clinical plagiarism just for a second. And, you know, for a couple of things. One, I don't even think you should be plagiarizing documentation created by a colleague of the same specialty, right? And so what I end up seeing sometimes, there will be one provider in a group, and I'll use hospitalist as an example, because we talked about them, where most physicians I work with have a documentation style for better or for worse, right? We can say they do too much exam or whatever, but it generally looks the same. But you'll run into a hospitalist periodically, right, where his or her style is like whatever day they come in, whoever they're taking over from, like that's their style. And they'll just keep using that note. And that, I mean, for me, that's always the easy way to tell that something's being plagiarized, where it's like as a provider, you're you're creating this pattern of documentation that is completely um, inconsistent with respect to doing anything the same way, right? So it's like if if your if your one colleague does this type of exam, you're representing that that's the exam you do when you take over that patient, and if your other colleague does this other type of exam, you're representing that that's the type of exam that you're doing. And to me, it's just an extraordinary risk. I, I mean, I think the the plus side of these guidelines in outpatient as they're coming to inpatient, you know, we talked about this notion of a handwritten note where you just kind of lay out what's going on with the patient. There's a lot more latitude under these guidelines to do this, right? Just tell me how the patient's doing today. Tell me what you're doing about it. Tell me what you looked at. And I think these notes that get cluttered with all this old stuff, you know, it's just a, it's it's going to be a recipe for trouble because I don't think the payers are going to stop doing their audit work because the guidelines are now, quote, simpler. And remember, right. you can't see a clone note on a claim. They can only see it if they inquiry. So right. you right. might want to do some, at least some internal audits to take a look to see if you're, you know, you've got a pattern going on because it's not on the claim. It's if they come and say, you know what, let's see what's going on here. You raised the, and you raised a great point about self audits. Um, over the weekend, Eric Rubenstein posted um, about 
a provider who um, should have been doing these self-audits to be able to identify. And now, under the civil monetary penalties law, they got hit with double damages. And the government was talking about corporate integrity agreements. And the fact that they said, look, here's the deal. No longer are we willing to accept an error rate of 5% or less as sufficient or as appropriate. Any identified error counts as an overpayment, and that money has to be refunded. So I've actually written a blog that's coming out through NamUs this week on the critical importance of self-auditing and how it ties into what's referred to as a reverse false claim. But since we're shifting over to compliance, I want to, I want to quickly start to talk about now, Terry, uh, uh, Terry, I'll start with you. Um, physician involvement in a medical practices compliance program. Are you seeing providers that you're contracting with, consulting with, having any level of understanding as to what their compliance plan is, what's involved in it, and what their obligations are as the physician leader of the organization? So there's a question first that we got to got to back up before I can ask that question, answer to that question. Do they have a compliance plan? <laughs> so <laughs> um, the answer is, unfortunately, I would say if I had to guess 80, 80% of the time, no. They don't have anything in writing. They don't have any kind of corrective action plan if there's a problem. Um, they're basically, and I guess, and this is this is unfortunate to say this, but what I find in most practices, and these are practices that have, I would say, less than 25 physicians. The the bigger practices that have, you know, corporate and staff and things like that. They, they tend to be a little better, but it's the smaller practices. And again, you know, under 25 physicians or so, which actually isn't that small, but they basically say, if there's a problem, go to the office manager or, uh, you know, um, if you get time, talk to the doctor about it, who does want to hear it. Um, or, you know, basically you've got a staff that is afraid to even say anything because they don't want to lose their job. So trying to get through all that before you get the involvement of somebody that is in the compliance department. Um, I know I have several big clients where they have a department of compliance and we go through about once every quarter and make sure that they're updating and everything. And a recent uh, client, they had their last compliant update was in um, 2015 and they had some old policies, some archived regulations, uh, they hadn't even started what they need to do for the No Surprise Act, and they are not contracted with a lot of payers and see a lot of ER patients. And so I think, Sean, one of the things, and I, I'd love to have the input as far as addressed, you have to have a compliance plan. It, it is required if you are billing a government entity. So if any of you take Medicare patients at all, you have to have one. So it, there's not an excuse not to have one. And if it's ever checked on and you get a knock at the door, let me have it. And I've seen, you know, OSHA do that. I've, I have seen some Medicare representatives knock on physician's door. They'll say, okay, you need to stop billing right now. You have to have a compliance plan if you take any Medicaid or, or Medi Medicare patients. Secondly, look at your contracts. Sean and I, you know, 
um, we're going to be talking about contracting tomorrow on, on our Ter Terry Tuesday segment. And it's just interesting because contracts now, provider contracts require a compliance plan. Look at your Blue Cross Blue Shield. You have to have them. You know, look at United Healthcare. Oh my gosh, you have to have one for them. And so if you don't have one, it's it's a problem. And so then kind of moving forward, let's say you do have one. Usually I find, <laughs> this is going to blow up your um, your people commenting. Usually I find the person that's in charge is usually one of the worst documenting physicians <laughs> that's in charge of that. So I don't know, Scott or Paul, Paul, I, I know you yeah. probably see that, but it's usually the doctor that's not doing that great, great, you know, on their compliance. Yeah. Um, and that's usually uh, uh, the same doctor who says, do you know how much money I bring into this organization? But I get paid. Okay, so let's back that up. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that comes up in a lot of reviews I do of different types where they're talking about, you know, I'll kind of run through the provider roster and they'll be like, well, that provider brings in a lot of revenue, right? And it's, um, you know, there's a lot to bite off there. And I've, I've kind of followed some, some of the comments coming through about compliance plans and the mentioning of them and people doing them or not doing them. And, you know, I, I did a webinar for NamUs a couple of weeks back, maybe three weeks now about accountabilities in organizations. And, and you know, sometimes that's tough to, to grasp, right? But I think, you know, one of the things I try to say to the physicians sometimes is every one of these people that work in this organization uh, is doing things on your behalf that potentially could, you know, land you in jail, potentially could get you audited, potentially could result in you paying back uh, heavy sums of money. So there's two main takeaways from that. First, uh, you or somebody at the physician level, there was a comment that came through about a physician liaison, needs to be involved in compliance in, in a meaningful way, right? Needs to understand it and needs to understand how it reverberates throughout the organization because that is what gets you from, you know, yeah, we could say, well, first you need a compliance plan, right? So I'll just go on, you know, go to the web and buy something that I can just stick on the shelf or just copy and paste something that I find online. But then the more important part is like how tied into the culture of your organization is it and how much are individual people acting against it in a way that you have accountabilities, right? So when in, in our email exchange uh, with Terry, we talked about accountability, right? Like, like in the eyes of the payer, like it's always the doctor, right? So if a claim goes through and the provider gets paid, but they come back later and they say, well, we shouldn't have paid you for this. You know, the, the payer is going to look to the provider, but the provider is really looking to the organizational structure and saying, well, how did this happen? And if you're not doing that behavior proactively, all these things are potentially seeded in the organization that you don't really know anything about. And that all starts with compliance planning. So, exactly. You know, it, 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 it's so funny. You, you know, as I was listening to you, Scott, you were talking about you know folks going out onto the web and buying a, a compliance plan and sticking it on the shelf, or you know, doing uh, using Doctor Google as I like to refer to it. And 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 it, it was so funny because again, I go back and we talk about accountability, right? And if you are the physician owner of your practice the buck stops with you and you need to know everything that's put onto a cms 1500 form that has your name attached to it why 
Because if you ever get bored and read the back of a CMS 1500 form, it says, by affixing your signature, whether manual or electronic, you are attesting to the accuracy of the information contained on this claim form. Number two, you know, when I do a compliance review or I do a compliance gap analysis, one of the first things that I always request is what? A copy of your current compliance plan, if you have one, and any policies or procedures that may be in place. And people don't believe that I actually read their entire compliance plan, but I do. And I, I happened to find one where, you know, I took the physician off of the email chain because I didn't want anybody being embarrassed or anything like that. And I sent it back to the practice administrator who claimed that she wrote it from scratch. And I said, not for nothing, but it says University of Iowa in here. And I need to understand. No, I'm not. I'm sorry. Not University of Iowa. University of Utah School of Medicine. And I said, I need to understand. <laughs> Did you write this for Utah or, or where? Well, no, I, I. But my point is this. You can't adopt things that are irrelevant to the scale of your practice or to the focus of your practice because it's just noise. The government will look at that during an investigation and they will say, this is a bunch of BS. So, um, so there, there's a question, there's a comment that was posted here and let's see. Um, let me put it up here. Betty, is there a conflict of interest for a physician to be his own chief compliance officer? I think I'm doing great with no compliance issues. Um, okay, so there there are recommendations as to who should and who should not be the compliance officer. If you are an individual who has direct ties to the financial component of the organization, then you should not be the chief compliance officer of your organization because it is a, a conflict of interest. And what you don't want is during an investigation to be labeled as being complicit, right? Because you, you sat back and you did nothing about it. And remember, the False Claims Act is based on knowingly, deliberate ignorance, or reckless disregard regarding the falsity or accuracy of the claims that are being submitted. So I, I, I would suggest that a physician not be the chief compliance officer of their organization if they are a solo or small group practice and they are also the president of the organization and they're responsible for the financial um, goings on, if you will, of the organization. I think that's a great question. Uh, Terry, Scott, Paul, I'll throw it out yeah, to you guys. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that, um, you know, particularly as we get into larger organizations, or really anybody who's doing any function related to compliance, like another set of eyes always has value. Um, and so I would, you know, I would not, the way that part of that was framed, right? I think I'm doing great with no compliance issues. Well, one way to help learn more about that is to have somebody look at a sample of your work and validate whether or not that's true. And, you know, a, a reluctance to do that would be 
concerning to me, right? It's like, and it, it, I, I think, I think there are there's always a benefit to having additional eyes on things in most aspects of practice operations, and certainly compliance, billing, code selection, medical necessity, things of those nature. Because the worst case scenario is you'll spend a little money or time to validate the fact that maybe you do know as much as you think you do. Uh, you know, maybe that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is you will have a multi-scale compliance problem because you never looked at it because you came in and you said in a very authoritative way, I'm the compliance officer here and I feel like I do everything right. And all the employees are like, well, we don't want to talk back to, you know, we don't want to say anything. I'm just going to put my head down and do my work. And um, at some point in the future, that turns into a big problem. And look, the thing I would say about that as well I see this in all the practices I work in, right? Like physician often sets the tone of culture in an organization. And so if you find yourself in a situation, you know, and you're on, on, on with us today and you just feel like, look, I feel like I'm constantly pushing back on compliance and nobody listens to me. And I, you know, I feel like that, that, that it might be time to go somewhere else, right? Like you have to kind of factor all those things in, in, in certain situations. Well, I would add to that, that, go ahead, please. I, that in, a, in a nutshell, compliance is basically there has to be somebody you can go to without fear that there is a problem. There has to be something that the staff and everyone, I guess, in the organization feels comfortable that this is going to be addressed. And if there turns out there is a problem after investigation, that there's consequences and then there's a corrective action plan so it doesn't happen again. And I know that's kind of nutshelling what compliance is, but I find that people are too afraid to, like Scott was saying, to go to anyone, especially if it's the physician that's the problem and is also the compliance officer. Um, but there has to be checks and balances. There has to be a way to report it, know that it's going to be addressed, know that there's a consequence, and then a corrective action plan so it doesn't happen again. And I'm not just saying this to keep to keep from a lack of hostile work environment. I'm saying this like what Sean said and what Paul were saying, in case anybody comes in to check, or if you have to, if you get tagged for this, you have to show that you address the problem. And I know in the audits that I've been doing for over 20 years, when I have a, a practice that is being audited by a payer, whether it be Medicare or a commercial plan, and they do see that you have compliance in your office, they see that you have a way to identify it, to correct it and you address it. It's almost like I'm dealing with 2021 EM guidelines. You have to address the problem. Otherwise, you, you know, you can't you can't say that you're you're doing anything about it. And you have that in writing, and writing is the key. The biggest thing is they say, okay, well, you know, we're gonna tweak this. And I've seen the the penalties, the response from them go way down versus practices and organizations that have nothing. They're just like, okay, well, so you're just gonna keep doing this bad behavior forever. So I, I think that, you know, it, it's not just because you need it in your work environment, but you need it because, you know, it's not, it's not if you get audited, it's when you will eventually be looked at if you're not being looked at already. Yeah. And Terry, you mentioned fear as part of the uh, problem. And I mean, uh, you know, a, a good communicator, a good uh, compliance officer is going, going to be able to bridge that fear. Uh, you know, they're going to be able to communicate very clearly what needs to occur and that there are lines of communication that are there. Uh, when, you know, I was, I served as a compliance officer for 
uh, a third-party billing company, which is a little bit different from a physician office, but the concerns are actually uh, uh, multi-layered because you you know all of your activities are going to affect every single practice that you do business with. So, uh, I mean, that fear uh, is is a problem until it becomes anger at things not getting fixed, and that's where the real problems begin. And and I posted this comment. I posted this comment by Samantha Patterson right as you started talking, Paul, because I, I thought this is so critical. And I think this is this this is endemic of what a lot of folks in our industry go through, right? They they matriculate through the system because they were the front office coordinator, then they were the coder, now they're the compliance officer. And people are not looking at these individuals as what their current respective role is, but rather what they used to be. So in Samantha's case, she's saying, look, you know, I transitioned into this position, but I can't get my peers to view me as the compliance officer. They still look at me as a coder. Well, what you need to do, Samantha, is to very clearly and, 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 is to very clearly communicate via a memorandum that has been agreed to by senior leadership to make a very formal announcement, if it's not been done, that Samantha Patterson has transitioned into the role of compliance officer, corporate compliance officer, chief compliance officer, VP of compliance, whatever it is. And her role includes investigations, creating corrective action plan, engaging with corporate counsel to help drive the culture of compliance in the organization. If you have a current concern, a current complaint, a current request, you take it to the office of compliance or to your compliance it's all in the messaging. And what yeah. I will tell and, 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 and I'll leave it at this because Scott, this is something that you had to learn, right? Because you know, Scott's worked with me now for what 15, 16 years that we've been together. It's been a long time. I yeah, it's been a long time. Okay, before you guys keep going, yeah. I'm gonna give you the female perspective here because we're working with women. In the administrative part of all this, I mean, it's a women thing. So just putting something out, women are going to roll their eyes and go, yeah, she was a coder, whatever. Okay, so here's what you do. Okay, and I'm just going to give you the emotional <laughs> woman perspective here. And you're, I know people are going to go, exactly. So first thing and, you want to do. And, yes, don't, and, and don't yeah, feed Sean, into no. Terry's stuff. Yeah, no, don't no, no. do it. No, no, no. You got to listen to this. So the first thing you want, obviously, you do want a memo. Absolutely. That's very helpful from the powers that be. But the next thing you need to do is you need to make sure that the, the staff does not feel like you're now over them. You are now helping. You are now keeping them all protected, the entire practice, and that your door is open and you're here working with them. Nobody's over anybody in this. Now, that person may be over people, but that's not how you want to make people feel. So it's more a kind of a lateral move, but now you're moving into compliance to make sure everything is hopefully done correctly that you have a place to go this is your safe space i'm telling you guys women and that now <laughs> and i can say that because i'm a woman you guys can say this um but basically it's 
it's it's a place that you can come and let me know if you identify a problem and now I'm going to try and help you. And I just have that coding background to know what I'm looking at. And that's that's how you kind of have to address it in predominantly in healthcare administration. It's you guys, you know, it's 85 percent women. I mean, I appreciate all you men here, but I'll, I'm just saying that's where we're at there. OK, go ahead. Yeah, I would just say a couple of things <laughs> with the caveat that I am a, not a woman. Um, I think whatever what what Sean and Terry have both talked about, right? Organizational support in a new role is important, right? It's like all the stuff I've talked about at various points. Do you have a job description? Do you understand like how you know you're being assessed in the new role? But then, yeah, as Terry said, interacting uh, with your staff in this new role, um, it, you know, that can be a number of things that I would describe, I guess, in in terms of organizational behavior as like non-threatening things to me at least, right? Like things you're working on with respect to compliance policy. I'm not sure specifically what your title is or what your function is. You know, I think the other side of that that I've seen in organizations before is like you might have a group of seven people and they're all doing the same thing. And then one of them becomes something else, right? And, and all the other people still view you as that thing and there's two sides to it, right? Like in your own mind, it makes it hard for you to get things done but you might find yourself in a situation, right? And, and again, without understanding the specifics of it, you don't want the fact that these people view you as friends. You don't want it to mean you can't be friends, you can't have good office relationships, but depending upon the structure of your organization, you may find yourself in a situation where you do have to take some sort of disciplinary action at some point against somebody who used to be, quote, one of your friends that you all did uh, the same job. And, and you know, one of the things about job responsibilities and job function, as I've always said, is if you're unwilling to do those things, eventually the people above you are going to say, well, it's you're the one that's not performing to organizational expectations. Right. And so I don't mean that harshly. I don't know the specifics of it. But when you say like my peers still see me as this person, some of it is how does the organization set it up? Not so that you're adversarial to Terry's point, but so that you're able to be perceived and supported in your new job with your new job description and, you know, your clear line functionality for what you're supposed to accomplish, like in that role. Well, so can, let me, let me just ahead, uh, finish with this. You know, this yes. is a little bit in, of inside baseball for our audience. But one of the topics that we had on the uh, list today was who's accountable or responsible in the organization for compliance decisions. And is that clearly known? Uh, well, decisions being the key word, but, uh, if you take the word decisions out of that sentence, the answer has always been the same. Everyone is accountable and responsible in the organization for compliance. And that should be clearly known through annual education as put forward as one of the seven uh, key uh, elements of a compliance plan. Uh, and, you know, there should be, you know, like you call your uh, insurance uh, broker when you have a car accident or uh, in my case, when a tree hits your house and that's the person you contact when things like this happen. You know, uh, I we tend to overthink it's like, well, who's responsible? The person who's been <laughs> who has the title and should be communicating that clearly. Well, well, well let I, me let me just say this. OK, and and. <sighs> I'm adjusting myself in my seat. So, Terry, I, I, I'm with you, okay? I, I, I get it, and I hear this all the time. You, you know, 
know the audience. Here's the thing, okay? And, and take this with a grain of salt. The OIG and the Department of Justice don't give a crap who your audience is. What they care about is when the SHF, okay? And y'all can figure out SHF, okay? When it hits the fan, okay? They don't care. Who 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 your friends are? And I see are, what you're or, saying, Sean, but it's right. not not how what percentage of practices actually get in front of the you know the Department of Justice. I'm not saying that doesn't Terry, happen. Terry, it does. it, it, it's growing, Terry. I know. Listen, I we're, know. we're in a we're in a, a new landscape, and I and and I disagree adamantly with people who say, oh, this is not a new aggressive error of enforcement. It's just because it appears that way because we've not been audited for. A couple of years during the public health emergency. That's a bunch of crap. Okay. But we still Just, have to speak to making the right the transition Listen, to compliance I, happen. I, I understand. But at the end of the day, okay. And and and, and listen, I, I respect everybody. I don't care, you know, you know, man, woman, whatever. Okay. Your title is compliance officer. Okay. And that means you have a greater level of responsibility and having that greater level of responsibility means that the buck stops with you and it's up to you as the compliance professional to be able to communicate effectively to your staff that guys gals listen i have responsibilities and the buck stops with me I just, I will just say, I think, you know, there's a lot sitting behind, you know, first of all, congratulations to Samantha on this new job. Um, I, there's a lot sitting behind it that affects some of these things, right? Like, for instance, if, if she was up for this job with like three other people in her previous department and she got it right, like there's, there's just a lot to think about. And and one of the things when Terry talks about uh, men and women, so when I was in college, which was a long time ago now. Uh, they had us read this book by Deborah Tannen, which I still remember. It was like Men and Women in Conversation. I think the book's called You Just Don't Understand. And it's it's old, right? And so she's written other work. It's her area of scholarship. But it was it talked very tactically about how men and women tend to communicate differently in a way that I've always tried to keep center of mind, right? And 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 so I do think those differences exist. I do think you know, I'll just lean back into what I said before, right? Like, I think it's important for Samantha's success in her new job, that she has support of the organization, has clear job descriptions, that people understand how she's being judged now as a contributor to the organization, because that's going to sort of inherently introduce probable conflicts with people that she used to work with as peers, right? And the thing that they always used to tell me in those situations is that if, if someone who purports to be your friend is undermining you and your job, then they're really not your friend, right? And so there are all these different dynamics that that we could get well off track with with Samantha here. So I think I think it's important that she has a job description, that she has the support of the organization, that she understands what her success milestones are. And that impacts how she works in a day-to-day basis with the understanding that, yeah, she can support these people in this other department. She can work with them. She can do all these other things. But if they look at her as nothing other than a colleague and they don't give her sort of the respect or whatever of the new role, then that's it, it's just going to create a conflict down the line somewhere. 
We're coming up on time, but uh, just a very quick note. There are friends and there are co-workers. If your co-workers aren't holding your bail bonds, they're probably not your friends. So let you know, keep that in mind as we talk deeper about compliance issues. That's actually how I learned that Paul was my friend. <laughs> okay. So before, before Terry decides that she's going to throat punch me through the computer screen today, I want to say, I want to say this was such an awesome discussion. Um, look, you know, these are very passionate topics. These are issues that people are, these are real issues that everybody is dealing with day in and day out. Um, I will tell you my struggles as a compliance officer are very real. Uh, I have a lot of days where I just want to throw my hands up in the air because it's just, I feel like I'm banging my head against the wall. Look, at the end of the day, we all have to work together. We all have to be a team. We have to find those synergies and we have to be able to do what's best for the organization. But at the end of the day, it comes down to making sure that we're also covering our own tushies because it's, it's human nature to want to protect ourselves and throw somebody else under the bus to take that beating. Now, for anyone who thinks that I was yelling at Terry, I was not yelling at Terry. I get a little animated. And it takes a lot to get me there. But Terry knows I love her. She's my friend. And we have a great episode coming up tomorrow on the Hashtag Terry Tuesday with Karen George of Buckalter. Um law firm out of California. We're going to be talking about physician contracting and all the ins and outs and the things to be aware of. I'm so excited for that program. It will be another live stream so you can catch it tomorrow. Um, but again, I want to say thank you to all of you who joined in today. We had so many folks online today. It's just awesome to see you all and to have you so engaged with us during this Monday roundtable. We're going to be back again next Monday for another roundtable. But until then, Scott, Paul, Terry, thank you all so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Terry, Terry's just giving me the thumbs up at this point. <laughs> all right. All right. And to each and every single one of y'all, thank you so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us for a little while. Remember, until next week, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.